people wonder how could the elect be deceived we're going to see things we have not seen before and we're going to see a lot of things that are going to look like armageddon hey this is unrefined podcast I'm Brandon Spain, your host, with co-host Lindsay Waters. Welcome to another episode. Hey, 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 you guys. It's time for another show. Today we have with us Gary Wayne, scholar extraordinaire, author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and the Descendants of Giants Plan to Enslave Mankind. And soon, part two of the Genesis 6 conspiracy, which we're going to talk about later on more in the podcast because we want to dive into that and, and kind of get a, a sneak peek of what he's what he's writing next. Uh, I just want to tell you, Gary, that this book is daunting. I'm still not finished with it, and I'm, I've been reading through it like really slowly and, and, and meditating on it, And but I, I do... I am the kind of goofy, nerdy guy kind of guy, though, that I don't like thin books. I love thick books. So I hope the second one is as thick as this one. <laughs> it is not quite as long. I promised all my uh, people who have bought my books and who like what I write that it won't be as long as the first book. So it's only 84 chapters this time. Oh, only 84. <laughs> wow. That's still exciting. I, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. I I'm just that kind of guy. I always like thick books. So, but uh, yeah, just to kind of start us out, I'd like to know because our our podcast we're kind of trying to appeal to like newbies or people like like we call them primers, people that are kind of new to a lot of the a lot of this kind of stuff, and to kind of pull them in, we, we like to, to kind of give them the basics and then go into the deeper stuff. And, and we really, what, what Lindsay and I, basically we've discussed, what we really want to talk about today is uh, your eschatology. I heard you on blurry creatures and you had, you had said something that you had a document on eschatology and how that your eschatology was different than the average eschatologies. And that intrigued me because of all the different theological areas that I, I mean, I'm seminary trained and all the different areas, they don't really go into eschatology as much in other than personal eschatology in seminary. So that intrigued me. And I'm like, Lindsay, we need, we need I want to get Gary on the show, you know, to talk about Genesis six, but, to, but to see how it, how it influences the, you know, eschatology and all that kind of stuff. But before we get, we dive into that, will you tell us, Tell us about your journey into the realm of the giants in Genesis 6. What got you started? Certainly, I wasn't looking to do that. Um, And I kind of backed my way into it. So, uh, and I'm glad I did, but I I didn't go there voluntarily. I was like kicking and screaming and saying, I don't want to do this. But so my, my, (laughs) my journey back to uh, God started on a, Friday evening with my brother and a friend uh, having beers and well into the night with lots of beers, somebody said, you know, how much courage do you have? Uh, And, uh, you know, at that age, and I was like 20 or 21 years old, I said, I have lots of courage. Like I'm up for any challenge. What what do you have? And he said, well, if you got enough courage, there's a book we want you to read. And 
I had no idea what sort of book that they might be talking about. And then they started talking about antichrist and false prophet. And I'm going, that's pretty weird stuff, guys. I said, I remember something about that when before I, you know, was led away and uh, from God and when we were being raised in the church in our early life. Um, I said, what's the name of this book that you're talking about? And it was a book I never heard of. It was called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And it was written in the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I read uh, pretty much everything he wrote after that because uh, I, I was just fascinated with what he was talking about. But he scared the socks off of me uh, with the late great. And so I'm a Christian contrarian uh, and I was a contrarian before I became a Christian contrarian. So I, I want to verify everything that I can. So if somebody writes something, I want to, you know, can that be verified? And if somebody says something, I need to verify that. So I wanted to verify whether or not he was manipulating scripture and or just looking to sell books or whatever the motivation might be. I mean, my gut feeling was he was telling the truth, but I needed to go a little bit deeper. So the only way I could do that was I looked up the passages in the Bible and then I thought, OK, they're there. They're applied accurately, but that doesn't mean that it's not out of context and it's just designed for a preconceived conclusion uh, for whatever agenda that might be underlying things because as I say I'm a contrarian I need things verified so the only way I could do that was to to read the Bible and to see whether or not he was doing things in context so I read the Bible and then I realized I need to verify all the different prophecy lines because this is just a you know it's a spectacularly big book and takes almost forever to read, you know, when, when at least it seemed, seemed that way at that age. So I started to log the prophecy narratives and I got very quickly in and I ran out of highlighter ink. So then I needed a new system. So I started all over and I decided I would do files. And uh, so then I had to add more files because there's way more prophecy, prophecy narratives than I had anticipated. But along the way of doing that, um, and when I got to the New Testament, that's when I started to read Jesus's words. And it was just so preternatural. It just could not be a human speaking. And it just sort of, it just grabbed onto me at that point in time. And then the second thing was, is when I got to Genesis 6, I read about these giants. And I'm going, you know, I have no idea what that is. That's not what I'm here to do. I want nothing to do with that. And so I just skipped over it. Um, <laughs> but as you log so many things through the Bible, oh yeah, I wasn't going to deal with something that's crazy as giants. Um, more giants show up. And you've got the angelic <laughs> realm that you have to be dealing with. And then there's the demons. And it's like, I need to pay attention. And so when I got logging through the whole Bible, then I realized I need to double check that I've got most of the stuff that's here. So then I had to, I went through and I did it again. And as I did that, I logged all the different things that I thought were giants. And I didn't get it all the first time for the giants, but I locked it down and I didn't know what I was going to do with it. But I thought there's too much references to these kinds of peoples. And so I need to have this in a file for whatever reasons. And I didn't know what the reason was. So after I'd done all of this, and then I decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to put into about three different sets of binders um, the different prophecy narratives. So I can lay it out for myself, try and put it into some sort of order. It's not for publication, just for my own benefit. 
to get a better handle on yeah. things. And so I did that. And then I thought, um, I want to see what other people might have to say about prophecy. And, and I started getting all of these different fancy names and things like that for the different types of eschatology. And I'm going, how can they all, how can they all be right? Well, they can't be um, because they have some distinct differences in, on things. Not about you know, your faith in, in God, but in terms of the chronology of how end-time prophecy is fulfilled and what certain things mean. Yeah. So I thought, well, that's really odd, but you know what? Um, I like what Hal Lindsey says, but there's a few things in there that I'm not all that comfortable. That doesn't really line up for me, but I'm not ready to really sort of deal with that sort of aspect about it. But I started to get a better grasp on things when I thought I need to, I need to resolve this in my own mind. So, um, and I won't go into my prophecy approach, but once I had that sort of kind of almost like an epiphany, it just became kind of quite clear on the way through. So then I was able to organize things in an organized manner and I found things were able to fit very easily. So I have all this information and I thought, well, I got about 12 or 15 books I could write here, <laughs> maybe more, uh, <laughs> yeah, but definitely. I never went to university. Uh, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a minister. I don't believe I'm a prophet. And and just check off that whole list. All I am is is the average person who's got an enormous curiosity, who had a uh, obsession when I was young with history and prehistory, and uh, became obsessed with prophecy and then how that sort of linked together. So I thought I would write a short book. I thought, let's see whether I can write a short book, see whether or not it makes sense to me, whether or not uh, a publisher might think it would be worthy to publish, would it sell, and would people like it? And so I wrote the first 10 chapters very easily, and I decided to write about the flood and the giants because I thought this would just be fun. I'll learn more about it as I do, and I wrote the first 10 chapters. But then what kicked in was my other passions. And I understood that what was written in the Bible and prehistory and then the prehistory shortly after the flood is the same things that are written about in all cultures around the earth. The difference being hmm. is those, what people call today in North America, what other people from those countries would call their history, though what we call them over here is legend or mythology, they were telling the same story, but through a polytheist lens. Yeah. And I thought Christians might enjoy seeing that biases, but understand that it's just talking about the same types of events, but through their own culture and their own religion. And so I thought I could probably mix that in. So I started to mix in Sumerian, Greek uh, mythology. And then I thought, well, I can't really do that for people if they don't understand the culture and the context. And the, and the context and the culture comes from their polytheist religion. Well, then I had to go in and I had to research all the different religions. And then I realized that through the mystery schools that come out of the religions, that's what was taught within the elite that developed the whole culture. And that led me to the secret societies and seven sacred sciences that they developed that merged with uh, the fallen angels or the gods in the polytheist belief system. And all of a sudden, my 
book was growing. And then I realized I don't know anything about secret societies. So now I got to learn about secret hmm. societies. So after reading all of those different religious texts around the world, uh, putting it in the book, then I had to learn about secret societies. I was down that rabbit hole for almost 10 years and it's endless. It's wow. just, a, it's just tentacles that go absolutely everywhere with the size of the organization and all the different groups and all the different things that they do. It's just, it's just, it's, it's all, it, it, I thought I was crazy for a while because um, I thought nobody would believe this. And so I stopped many times. And uh, But there's always this sort of calling to come back and, and to finish. And I wouldn't have peace unless I did that. Uh, and so when I got back into it, things sort of, you know, started to make sense with me and my life again. And so I finished the book. So that's how I got into the giants. Um, and it's a very, very large topic, but I had no intentions of doing that. Uh, I wanted to write prophecy books. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> but it, it started, it started to lay the foundation for me that I needed to, you know, understand prehistory to understand prophecy. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I was going to ask you. And you took this wonderful scenic route to answering it that there, the, just the importance of prehistory to end times. Yeah, it is. It, it, all the context is there. You know, this is, I look at yeah. the creation of the Adamites as the resolution to the angelic rebellion and everything that the angels did to humankind uh, after the creation of the Adamites is to prevent humankinds to being raised up like angels in the future time and to mm -hmm. justify their rebellion. And so it's intricately interwoven. So if the Adamites are the resolution to the end time, everything that's written about the end time has its context in prehistory and the prophets that uh, provided mysterious allegories and things to prehistory, so to speak. Okay, so here's a question. You, you talked about the Adamites, and I've listened to some of your other podcasts. I, if I'm correct, you hold to a pre-Adamite man view as well, don't you? And could you go into that a little bit for us? Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, if people out there that are listening are intrigued about what I'm about to say, um, I have uh, several documents on this that you can get a hold of me through my email address or the website where it says contact the author and that's the genesis six conspiracy at gmail.com that i walk through it biblically so one of the things that my principles in uh, that i use to understand the bible and a prophecy uh, in my approach is is that i don't believe the bible is in contradiction i believe that the bible adds yes. additional information as it unfolds um, as part of its sort of MO, but that information never contradicts itself with passages that are written before. So it's a tough standard. So if I look at the Genesis 2 creation account with the day 6 creation account, I can't reconcile it. I can't reconcile it as just additional information because there's a complete different order of creation there. And you have yeah, different right. things going on. You have creation being done in male and female and multiple and being said to, you know, populate the earth. Well, Adam was created in singular. 
Sometime later, and we're not told how long later, a partner is being searched for Adam. And if yeah. there's nobody else, what kind of partner are they looking for <laughs> for Adam? <laughs> Unless it's amongst another population. But one, one presumes it's not the, the serpent race. That one presumes that Ahash may have been part of the days four through six creation, separate from the humans. And then if it's not them, it's either an animal or other people that aren't talked about. But Eve is created separately and differently. Well, and you know, too, Gary, it's like we, we can't. Yep. And we, we, I've heard it said a lot of times, we can't just take chapter two and make it a literary device like a lot of people want to do. And going, it's narrative and then a literary device and then narrative. That doesn't make sense in the tone of the scripture, the, the whole Genesis thing. I don't know if you've ever heard yeah. that before. That Yeah. And so I agree with you. It, it doesn't yeah. make sense as anything other than narrative. So, yeah. I'm yeah, so, and you, you get... I just, I just, I, oh, no problem. And you have Elohim that's used in Genesis 1. And then up to verse 4 in Genesis 2, you have Elohim, which is God, as it's translated um, in the King James Version Bible. And then you have Lord God that's introduced, Jehovah of the Elohim. So something different is also going on. It's like a great commission. And then you have the breathing of the Spirit, all of which isn't described in, 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 in day six. Um, and so there's something seemingly more going on with Adam. And I think when we look at uh, when does Eden happen? We have no idea when Eden would happen if Genesis is written in a linear manner. And I think it is. I mean, it just lays everything out sort of in order. Uh, and I think the whole Bible is linear. And where you have books like the Prophets, for example, you get the markers where it fits into that chronology. And you get the same thing going on in the book of Revelation. So I think the right. Bible begins yeah. in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. And it's just you just need to sort of relax and sort of let that sort of read. But it's, that, it's the different details that don't apply. And Adam is put in Eden. And the people are to multiply around the earth. And he's got this huge place and facility all by himself. It goes from the Nile to the Euphrates. I mean, all of this information is not in... Genesis 1 and is in conflict and the people are told that they can eat any tree in the world that they want but not Adam and there's that implied law uh, and before Adam before is you know the law was imputed as we're told in the New Testament so and then you get this issue that uh, with Cain as to who does he meet in Nod and why is there a place named Nod now you could say well authors just it's name that they named later. Oh, that's fine. But he met a wife. Where does the wife come from? He was built a city. Why yeah. did he need a city if he was the only one? Who did he need protection from? A lot of people might say, well, it was one of um, one of his sisters or descendants. Well, that's not really how the chronology sort of lays it out. At that time, there's nobody. But if you wanted to get into chronology, you know, Seth isn't born until 100, until Adam is 130 years old. And... Cain and Abel, they're like at the beginning of their adulthood with their first sacrifices that I think uh, Cain doesn't provide the first fruits, which is um, his big mistake compared to what Abel did. And so there's a gap there where there's no female. 
And then we're only told sometime after Seth that sons and daughters are married, are, are born by Adam and Eve. And in, in Deuteronomy 32, we're actually told it will be 70 sons for the 70 nations. And people will say, well, Eden is day eight, except that, well, it doesn't say day eight. <laughs> it doesn't say when Eden mm. happens. So you got all of these sort of things hanging out, and it just doesn't fit like a glove, what, which it needs to be. So um, so I, I think the way that it works is, is that... Um, there's a separate creation because after day six, I think the rebellious angels actually lead the people astray. And within Eden, there's a new set of uncorruptive animals that need to be named because of the complete corruption or the Hebrew word shakoth that's going on in the world that gets to an absolute uh, peak, if, if you want, at the time of the flood and after other corruptions that are going to take place of the earth. So, and that includes the plant genome, all of the an animal genome at that time as well, except for, I think, the animals that um, God saves and names and calls to the ark. So, I know that's a long story, yeah. um, and there's way more detail than I provided, but uh, it's just those kinds of things in terms of how I stick to my, my view of the Bible and how I stick to prophecy. So, it's one of those principles of prophecy as well. You can't have conflicts in prophecy. Well, and two, it also ties in, Gary, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it, it kind of parallels the story of Abraham. It, 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 God always starts with one man to, to create a people, and you had Adam and then Abraham, and he pulls yeah. them out from other people, so to speak. Yes. And so, and with, with, what and you're with saying, Noah as well. Yeah, and Noah as well, exactly. And, and, and so you, you're seeing the ways of God in that, and that makes more... That's more of a coherent understanding of the of the narratives in the first few chapters of Genesis, at least in my opinion. I, I think it's yeah that make that makes things make more sense to me. I mean, I know it's not mm. good grammar, but but it it makes things make a lot more sense. And yeah, um, and it so. it sort of helps answer where the four races come from. So All right, well, if you it, tell us, yeah, because you have a well. You know, we after the flood is basically where we get most of our information from. The rest is kind of murky in, in the prehistory part. But visually and what we've known throughout history, you basically have the four races that, you know, populated after Babel. So if there's just Noah and his wife, that would be of the same lineage of the Sethites and his sons, and then three wives of the sons, and if they're all Sethites, then... Where did the four races come after the flood? Either they survived the flood, uh, which I'm, I suppose would be possible, but I'm a proponent of only eight humans survived. And so the only way that yeah. that could happen is, is that um, people who weren't corrupted from the day six line um, were, were the wives. Uh, so you could have had uh, three races created on day one, or you could have four races, and an Adam would have been as the same word for man that is used, and male in Genesis 1 as Adam, um, would have been the same species, and maybe one of those races, and maybe even his wife, which is unnamed, uh, may have been uh, from the Sethite line, but may, perhaps then, if you're accounting for the races, and this is my speculation on how we account for things, is 
you could have had wives that were spiritually clean and probably physically clean and uncorrupted that were the son's wives. And now you have the four races after the flood. Hmm, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, I don't, I don't know where this actually fits in the whole biblical narrative or anything. Do, do you believe that before the flood, there was one continent, like a Pangea type thing. And then the flood caused a disbursement of that continent or, was it like it is today before the flood? Well, you know, it's certainly possible um, that there was one continent, and and people who is that an evolutionary propo- thing? Is that an evolutionary? Um, it, well, I was just going to say that people from a biblical perspective would look at that. Um, it would be in the in the generation of Babel, where you have a dividing of the people and a dividing mm. of the continents. Says it's a tough case Peleg. to make that way. Uh, yeah, I thought about Peleg. Peleg. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. Says he was born when the earth was divided, and I guess that could yeah. just mean Babel, but it could also mean the the, the literal continents. continents. Yeah, yeah. So you both. interpret that way. Um, for me, I I don't need to to have that as a splitting of the continents then um but it would make yeah. sense uh that before the flood that you know even from a polytheist perspective which is is again as i talked about they're talking about the same set of events through a polytheist lens and you get this great story that's written by uh, rosicrucians like uh tolkien who uh, write lord of the rings and middle earth as sort of one big continent right um, so even in their prehistory, Middle Earth, which is the Earth that rises up and dries up after chaos is taken away, and what they're talking about with that is, is the separation of the waters above with the waters below. So they're telling the same type of story, but through a polytheist lens. And in in those recollections, not all, but in in, in a lot of those recollections, you have sort of one continent. But in other recollections from polytheist prehistory, you have all of the oceans in place. Um, So that would suggest that the continents had divided and the names of the oceans were, whether they're known by the names today or not, were there as well. And great civilizations, more than just Sumer, more than just antediluvian Egypt, more than just antediluvian Greece were there. Some people say four civilizations, some people say seven, some write nine, some 11. So I think the most consistent one is four or seven for civilizations. And some of those civilizations were pretty far spread, but that would make sense on the populations being told to spread out through the whole earth in, in, in day one or day six from Genesis one, uh, that the continents may have been split by then already. But as as was mentioned with Peleg, I'm open to the fact that there could have been that drifting or a supernatural um, intervention to help ensure that the post-Diluvian epoch is going to play out so that all the Gentiles would be fulfilled and all the names destined in that period of time to who, whose names are written in the Book of Life have the opportunity to come into the earth and leave their name in or have it blotted out through free choice. Hmm. Yeah. And so this is where like the Atlantean story comes into play. Like one of the four civilizations, right? Atlantis. What are the, what are the other three, Gary, that they, they say? 
Well, Sumer is one, um, and probably yeah. likely um, the area where um, Cain was. And uh, I also think that you have a civilization that is in uh, below Mount Hermon. And some people would equate that with uh, Mesopotamia, perhaps. Uh, and Mount Hermon region is prevalent in Sumerian and, and Middle East uh, prehistory as well. And that Eden would be somewhere in that area as, as well. But that Cain went east into, into, into Nod, so east of Eden. So I think there's a civilization where the Sethites were and that are very closely associated with the Mesopotamian. Um, so once you get to the beyond Egypt, um, Greece and Sumer, and whether or not that's all part of that one civilization that would only leave one other one, that typically would be understood as as uh, Mu. Um, mm. And I make a, a distinction here because Atlantis is another island sort of continent. So, but that's kind of understood in the context of the four as being part of the Greek civilization. Mu would be more closely related to um, subcontinent of India, somewhere in the India Asia. Ocean or a little bit further south into Asia. Yeah. And that yeah. people from the Atlantean civilization and Mu would have settled areas that we would know today as North America and South America. Uh, that sort of indicates maybe a continental slip, but maybe it was just at that time, if it was one continent to the outer reaches of, of the land. So the Atlanta story is uh, probably the most common and popular story in, in, in the modern mythos of prehistory. And it's interesting that you have, um, you know, this ruling council of gods uh, that is talked about in right. Psalms 82. This would be the antediluvian um Council of the Gods ruling over the 70 nations as counted by the sons of Adam in Deuteronomy 32. And that Poseidon is part of this council of gods and one of the major gods, uh, one of the 12 Olympians. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And he intermarries with a human female and her name is Clyto. And they produce 12 giant Nephilim hero kings. Atlas is the most famous, and he's called both a titan and a hero and a demigod uh, as the third. And so titan can mean of heaven and it can mean of earth. So just as you have the Anunnaki watchers of heaven, the Anunnaki demigod watchers of the earth, this is a standard sort of understanding uh, around the polytheist world. And even within the Bible, some people can look at the Nephilim, which is the word for giant in Genesis 6, 4, and Numbers 13, 33. Uh, shows up three times in the Old Testament. Shows up more translated as giant, but a different word. Um, words, because there's a gibberine word that's translated into giant from the book of Job. Uh, but you have this uh, root word for Nephilim, and Nephilim means giant or giant tribe and tyrants and bullies and descriptions of these giants. You have this word nephal, as is, is in the plural, and the field would be the giants singular. I am is the male plural, as you get with cherubim or seraphim and gibberim and all of those words. It's a plural, and it's kind of almost like French, where you have male and female as sort of part of the language, right, in terms of 
uh, how things are, right. are, are split up. And so you have this word nafal, which are the nafalim. Nafal means fall. So if you call these ones I am as in ones as in plural, like the seraphim or the you know six winged serpent faced ones, or the the nephilim or the giant ones or the terrible ones, um, and you have uh, uh, the nephilim as the fallen ones because it means fallen or to prostrate oneself down on the ground. And so when we look at fallen angels, that's such a interesting connection. Uh, to the fallen angels, just as when you see the word um, Satan fall from heaven in, in the book of Isaiah, for example, that's the word nafal as well. So you have these connections uh, as the nafalim of the heavenly ones, the shamayim. And so shama being singular, which never shows up in the Bible, it's always shamayim as, as the plural. Um, so you have what I'm saying there is with uh, in this long sort of rabbit trail is you have the, the Nephilim of heaven and the Nephilim of earth. So you can make a connection that's a, a kind of a constant, again, seen through a, a post-Alluvian or, or, I mean, through a mono, monotheistic or polytheistic lens. So the Atlantis story is the same story as being talked about in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And that... It is in the preamble to the flood story as the context to the flood story and for the consequence of the earth having violence and corruption to such an extent that you're going to have the flood. And the same thing happens in the Atlantean story where you have these 12 kings that are trying to take over the world with their violence and, and, and impose their universal religion that I call in, in the Genesis 6 conspiracy part one, Enochian mysticism. Enoch, son of Cain, versus yeah. Enoch, son of Jared. Uh, two Enochs, if yeah. people aren't aware of it, and it's an important thing to, to, to remember. Um, that uh, it is telling the same story, but through a polytheist lens um, that Genesis 6 is talking about. And this is a constant throughout polytheism. Wow. That's fascinating. Hey, my unrefined friends. I just want to tell you guys that I am so thankful that you are my life. Some of our best fans uh, have been writing to us, and, and I, I just so encouraged about how lives are being transformed and people are getting something out of this podcast. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's why we're doing this, is to glorify Jesus and to just look at the world and have a, a more open view of the seen and the unseen and the supernatural in the world. So while we're doing that, we're going to handle all different kinds of topics. But see, what I'd like for you to be involved in or part of is our members-only group things that are coming in our members only group that are going to just blow your mind not to mention there's gonna be episodes in there that you won't be able to hear just on the normal episode channel so make sure to visit our website at unrefinedpodcast.com and check out our members only community i just can't stress the fact that you know we're after building a community and there's there's so much out there you guys and there's so much coming i really believe we need to build these strong communities of christ followers to to be able to handle what might be coming in the in the future days we're sure that you'd be a good fit and we cannot wait i can't wait to see you there
you know, the one that people use most commonly as to discredit the Bible would be the Epic of Gilgamesh, where you have Etna Petishtin um, as the Sumerian um, Noah. Other translations would be Zayazudra, um, but same character, same story. And uh, he's in an arc, different details on the macro level, um, then uh, on the micro le- level as as to what's in the Noah story, but on the macro level talking about the, the flood story and his whole family are on an ark. Thing is, is not only is Apnapishtin, his family, Gilgamesh and Enkidu, demigods, it's a story of giant survival or giant creation with Gilgamesh being born after the flood as, you know, the offspring of the, of the goddess Nin and Lugalbanda, king of Uruk, which would have been either another giant or a human to create Gilgamesh. And they are all classified as two-thirds god and one-third human. And even the Greek story with Deucalion and um, Pyrrha, they say that that's the uh, human survival story. Well, it's either a copy or a different accounting from polytheism for how giants show up the flood, or there's actually giants who did survive the flood. Um, and Deucalion is the son of Prometheus. So mm, either way, oh, he's wow. either a... <laughs> yeah. Um, either Prometheus is either another a giant or a god. So you're talking about a giant survival story. It doesn't matter how you sort of slice it. So, And again, that's constant. And throughout the world, you get human survival stories on an arc and giant ones, and they're told a little bit differently, but about the same event. Wow. That's fascinating. Well, I was I was going to ask you earlier, and, and this is um, its own topic, but, but a little little bit of a rabbit trail. Um, do you think that when uh, David talks about his mighty men, is there a correlation between those mighty men of renown versus the mighty men of renown that it talks about in Genesis six? It, did, did did I guess? I'll just spit it right out. Did David have giants among his mighty men that did these exploits with him? We have to make some distinctions. So it's an excellent question. So Gibberim, or the singular Gibor, as Mighty One shows up in Genesis 6-4, describes the Nephilim. And it's used 158 times, 155 times in the Old Testament in Hebrew. But it doesn't always mean a giant. And so sometimes it's just used as an expression of strength and power. Sometimes angels, as when it says that they excel, yeah, that goes back to the Hebrew word Gabor. Sometimes it's the strength and power of God that's being described. So you have to look at the context at how it's being described. And sometimes there's a feminine aspect as in the application of that power which is 1369, which follows 1368 Gabor, and that's Gibberah with the A-H as a uh, female plural suffix, and it's used 
again for the application just as you would have you know shakam or uh, shaka as the male and female version of wisdom being used so you have to make a distinction that it may not be referring to a female um, but just the action of that word as it's sort of applied in hebrew as i would understand it and there's other examples but just to sort of lay that down as 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 an example so when we're reading the context of Mighty One in the Old Testament, we have to understand when it goes back to Gibberine, is it defined as a giant or not? So when it's used for, let's say, um, Nimrod, he's the son of Cush. Hmm. So either Cush hmm. married a fallen angel, um, which we're not told that happened and we're not told who the mother is but he's classified as becoming a gibbering or a mighty one so but he's got a human father so it's unlikely that he was but he portrayed and acted i think like a like a gibbering now with david's mighty men you have that word gibbor again and so it could be just being brave warriors is is likely application because most of the israelites are the mighty men but there's a few exceptions in there that now you can sort of say, okay, the Israelites weren't Raphaim as the giants would be known after the flood. Rapha being right. the singular, Raphaim being the plural. And Raphaim does show up twice in the Bible translated as Raphaim, once in Genesis 14 in the War of Giants and once in Genesis 15 amongst the land that is being promised to Abraham from the Nile to the Euphrates. So um, I don't know why they didn't transfer it translated Raphaim all the way through, but they didn't. They confused and conflated the word giant, uh, at least in the King James Version Bible. And so when we look at uh, Uriah the Hittite, uh, Hittites, uh, and I, I walk through this in detail in, in my second book, would be part of what I call the hybrid giants after the flood. So the Raphaim are post-Diluvian giants, Nephilim are anti-Diluvian giants. And so the only time that Nephilim shows up after the flood is twice in Numbers 13.33 where it says uh, Anak were the children of giants. Now, in the accurate part of the report, because that's the embellished evil part of the report, Joshua and Caleb did describe the Anakim kings that they saw. And they also described people that were taller than them as confirmed in Deuteronomy 1. And that um, the Anakim kings were Sheshai, Ahiman, and Helmai. And they lived in Hebron, Kirath Arba. Uh, Arba is the father, the patriarch of the Anak, and he is not in the table of nations because you don't have any Raphaim in the table of nations. And so... Mm -hmm. Raphaim is the word that's used to describe the Anak or the Anakim in Deuteronomy 2, where that word goes back to the Hebrew word Rapha. So the embellished part of the report was to terrify the Israelites because they understood the veracity of the Nephilim and that they were even bigger before the flood. So they didn't call them Nephilim, or didn't call them Raphaim, they called them Nephilim to terrify the people so that they wouldn't have to go in and fight these monsters. And so into that sort of mix, then, oh. you have the word Hittite, which is, is Heth from the Canaanite line, and Sidon, which would be his brother, and Canaan the father. But after that, you have the nine 
patriarchless tribes. There are no other patriarchless tribes in the table of nations in Genesis 10 or, or, or First Chronicles. And so, and as I walk through in the new book, that these have a patriarch, but it's a Raphaim patriarch, which is why they're not listed in the table of nations as Rapha is not listed and as Anak is not listed and other ones that I'll name uh, in, in the book in part two. So these are seven to nine feet tall because they're hybrid humans and Raphaim. So the daughters of Canaan married with the Raphaim patriarchs to create the patriarchless nations like the Amorites, the Jebusites. Uh, the Hivites and mm -hmm. all all nine that are sort of mysteriously put there as a family of the Canaanites, which can be translated not only as family, but a different species or a different kind. So when we go back to Uriah the Hittite, he's likely a hybrid warrior. Um, and, that, and that the Hittites, as with the Canaanites, as with the Sidonites, also intermarried with giants, whether or not Canaan did that, whether or not Sidon did, whether or not Heth did, or some of their daughters intermarried with the Raphaim too. Uh, but because they're descended from Noahite patriarchs, they received the patriarchal or eponymously named uh, tribe, even though they would be hybrids, whereas the other ones would be eponymously named after their patriarch. Hmm. There's also well, Makathites, which would yeah. be considered a tribe of giants, as I covered as well. There's one Makathite in there. So there's a few ones that could be considered giants that are in the mighty ones fighting with David. And it's not unusual for David to have these kinds of giants fighting with him. This is early on, but later on, he's got the Pelatheme and the Cherethim which are part of the migration of the Philistines and aboriginals from the island of Crete that the Philistines intermarried with. And in, in the second book, I make the case that they're giants as well, and the Philistines are the hybrids. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've heard that. I've, I think I've seen that somewhere before. I mean, well, look, that, that's where uh, the, the brothers of Gath, I mean, Goliath and all his brothers came from, right? From that Cretan line? Yes. Well, and the one who succeeds Goliath as king of Gath uh, is Ashish. And A-C-H is part of the Achaemenian patronymic titles that go along with it. He's also called uh, Abi Melech, which is also a Philistine title that was in the time of Abraham as well for a patronymic king title. But Ashish is his name, and that means Greek, and Ish is a champion or a warrior. And he's the one who replaces uh, uh, Goliath as king of Gath. And David takes five smooth stones, right? So he's prepared to kill all five giant kings or all five four other brothers of Goliath of that time because the giant um, that was uh, Goliath's father bore, bore four other giants. Some people might say six, but whatever it is, four, five, or six, he was prepared to, with the uh, five smooth stones, to kill all those giants that day if he, if he had to. Hmm. So there were five lords of the Philistines. Was each one yes. of them kind of a... Yeah, I, I just thought of yeah. that for some reason. Yeah, you have the princes and the kings of the Philistines who are appointed. So there's two different terms. There's the princes of the Philistines and the lords of the Philistine. 
Okay. Princes of the Philistines are the, sort of the senior order, and they nominate each of those kings for that Philistine pentapolis. And um, when we look at uh, how how that whole society was set up, it's it's, it's set up on a sort of military sort of uh, network and. The word Sar and Sarim, which is used for the Saranum as it's transliterated for these kings and these, these princes, is sort of a word that goes back to tyrant and tyros and into a German etymology, um, again, named after, you know, giants from the Greek Greek sort of area. So it, it's, it's important to understand there's that side of this mixture of the Philistine Confederacy and that when the Philistines carved out Gaza from uh, the Avim, not all the Avim um, were destroyed. They actually uh, maintained one mm -hmm. of the cities. And the, and the Anakim remained in two of the two cities, and Gath was one of the cities of the Anakim. So you have this mixture mm -hmm. of all of these different giants. So not all the Anakim were driven out, not all the Avim were met, uh, were driven out, and then you have these migrating giants and hybrids from Crete that becomes the new uh, Philistine Confederacy, as what I would call as a larger part of the southern uh, alliance of giants, which included the Horim and the Malachim and uh, a few other giant tribes. Hmm. All right, so let's. Uh, uh Let's let's kind of I want to shift gears a little bit here, if it's all right with you, Gary, and and let's let's um, delve a little bit into the eschatology aspect of this because that's what really fascinated me about your your views. You you drew me in when you basically said that you had distinctive um, aspects, which I can see by the method that you researched over the years. You know you. You didn't go into it with presuppositions of I have to fit these certain molds, and you, you and and so what are some of the distinctives of the eschatology uh, that you've come up with relating to the Genesis six than the the usual views that we we have? Yeah. So one of the things I mentioned earlier was is that um, to understand prehistory. I mean, to understand prophecy, you need to understand prehistory. So if you want to know the yes. larger meaning to Babylon or who the uh, the mighty kings are in the New Testament, the Megastanes and um, Megos, of, uh, as they're being described, and these are kings, you need to understand the bloodlines of the giants and the whole sort of hierarchy uh, that rules this world, as we're told about in the New Testament by uh you know, it's governed over by Satan and then his council of gods um, underneath him. So that's one, one of the things that is part of my uh, approach. And the other thing we mentioned yeah. about was, is I read the Bible literally um, yes. and that the Bible is linear. So those are all part of it. And that uh, even Revelation is linear and it's got markers in there for it. For it. I, I define allegories from within the Bible not outside the Bible. Now, where polytheism mm -hmm. can add context and more information about what the Bible references, I may reference that, but I base and measure everything 
um, outside the Bible against what's inside the Bible. And that um, I, one of the things I try and do, because what I noticed in a lot of the preconceived approaches is that um, the cases are made and they leave out inconvenient passages. So yeah. I believe that all the relevant passages have to be included and they have to fit. And you yes. just can't leave out the ones that don't fit your preconceived conclusion. Um, but, you know, the most important thing that I do is, is I put everything around what Jesus said versus put Jesus around what all the prophets said. Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He is the word of God. He is the Jehovah of the Elohim. The whole Old Testament and the New Testament is all about him. And that we should not apologize for what Jesus said. We should not reimagine what Jesus said. And we should not ignore what Jesus said. We should put all prophecy around what he said. And when you start to do that, it makes sense. And so some of the people might say, well, Jesus didn't put things in a chronological order. He put them in a topical order. Fairball, it sounds like an easy way to sort of dismiss what he says so you can start fitting in things the way that you want them to fit in. But the language doesn't really sort of stand up to that. So in the uh, books of uh, Matthew, Luke, and Mark, you have this word then that is put in after the events, and then this happens, and then this happens, right? And that word's not inserted by the translators. It actually has a Greek word, and that's the Greek word toda. And it means then, at that time, <laughs> after that. So he's using very specific words in his end-time oration to the disciples as to what will be the major assign assignment, what would be the major signs of your coming, how will the end time come about? And he's giving them the chronological order. And you have that word toda is not just used once. It's used in Matthew 24, 9, 10, 14, 16, 21, 23, 40, uh, Mark 13, 14, 21, 26, 27. I won't go through all the Luke ones, but you get the picture that yeah. the same word is being used all of the time. And there's a chronology. And then he goes and he puts the abomination in the middle of his signs of his coming. Not just saying when I'm going to come and then nothing after is the signs of his coming. He puts it in the middle of the of his coming. And then he says to reference the book of Daniel for the abomination. And that gives you the timing at the midpoint. And so everything, once you start to put all the verses around what he said, it starts to take away all of the contradictions. So all of the book of Daniel flows, the book of Revelation flows. And when you overlay 2 Thessalonians 2 on top of what Jesus said, it flows perfectly. You can overlay anything any of the prophets said onto what Jesus said, and it'll fit. It's just sort of just that simple. And one of the other things, as you've probably heard that I like to do is, and this is just sort of for my own benefit, uh, because it gives you more context, I think, is, is I like to take the words back to, after I've used several translations to sort of triangulate how it's understood in English, um, because it's not always translated the same way, different passages 
And then I take those words right. back on the key passages, back to the Hebrew, original Hebrew and the original Greek. And you find in both of those languages, you have several different meanings, a lot that are sort of nuanced as part of the same meaning. Uh, and then some of them that are completely different. So you have to select the right meanings for the that Hebrew word translation or that Greek word translation. And it just sort of reflects a little bit more about the context. And that's what I really found is, is and you can do that sort of select selectively with a concordance, but it ha don't select a meaning that doesn't fit the sentence. Don't select a meaning that uh, doesn't fit the, the chapter or the verse that it's in. Don't select a, a meaning that would contradict anything else in the Bible that's written about that topic. It's got to fit perfectly. And a lot of people will try and manipulate those meanings. And you have, I try and be, and I, I recommend that you have to be disciplined if you really want to, want to get sort of a full understanding. And then another thing I do that's a little bit different, not with everybody, but with some, is Old Testament prophecies that are applied to Israel, I apply to Israel. If they're applied to Judah, I apply them to Judah. One's the southern kingdom, one's the lost tribes of the north, and they have separate prophecies that will bring them back together in the end time, but you have to apply them differently. If it's applied to a specific tribe of Israel, like Ephraim or Manasseh or Dan, those are again, apply to those specific people and do not conflate them with church prophecies. We get a lot of prophecy in the New Testament that applies to the church, mm -hmm. but just don't overlay what was guaranteed to Israel uh, and Judah in the Holy Covenant, in including the reconciliation in the second exodus that happens in the last three and a half years. Yeah, no, not, no that that's... That's so simple. I mean, and, and that's that's how it should be laid out. I, you know, I kind of have this image of you, like uh, like laying on different layers on top. They, how, I remember how they used to make maps a long time ago in the encyclopedias, which dates me anyway. And how you would have one map would go down, and then the other map would go down on top of it, and include more of the map, and then the other map, yep. and and that's how I see you doing prophecy, which makes yes. perfect sense. All these yep. layers come down, and and all together they make a picture that is more coherent. Is that a, is that a yeah, proper? It would does. that be a good? Uh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And and I don't have to worry about if I come across a verse I missed, it'll it'll slide in because it, it 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 should. It needs to. It comes it's it's right. the word of God. So, you know, there's some approaches that say that we've already had the first three and a half years of the last seven. There's yeah. it, and it's very interesting sort of philosophical kind of argument, except that it leaves out parts of prophecy. <laughs> and so <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering how that sort of really works if you're, if you want to include the whole Bible. Um, and they say, well, anti, you know, there's already been an abomination. There's been the first three and a half years. I'm going, well, let, let me see. So in Daniel nine twenty seven, it says there's one week that's separated um, for all of 
prophecy, all of vision, um, everything to be completed, including the introduction of Jesus. And now you're going to slice that in half, that it wasn't all one week at a time that it says. And then you're going to actually contradict that by saying, because what they tend to do then, they start to leave out the New Testament prophecies, but there's still conflicts with what Daniel says. And I'm going, so if this has happened, that uh, after, you know, uh, after the destruction of, of Jerusalem, then how is it that in Daniel, um, uh, let's say Daniel 11, 21 to 22 to about 30 describes the rise of Antichrist in the first three and a half years after negotiating the covenant in 927, and then comes the abomination. We haven't seen that rise, and we haven't seen in Daniel 2 with the metallic empires or Daniel 7 with the beast empires the rise of that end-time empire of ten kings that is going to rule with Babylon in the first three and a half years, but they don't like to use the, the, the New Testament prophecies. Mm. Mm. So, Gary... Because then you got to leave out all... you got to leave out a lot of revelation then as well by leaving out the New Testament prophecies. Yeah. Go ahead. Do I understand that you kind of hold to that uh, God pressing the pause button view of the 70 weeks? The, the gap yes. kind of theory? Yes. Um, yeah, I do. Okay. And because, you know, in, before in Daniel 11, you get what happens, um, you know, after the, after the fall of Jerusalem, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then it jumps into the end time, starting in verse 21 with, with the Antichrist, which appears in Daniel 9, and we're told will come up amongst that last empire as a horn in Daniel 7, and also, um, you know, as it sort of matches up with the book of Revelations, but sticking with Daniel 7, but Daniel 8 in another prophecy talks about the same type of events with the same type of language, but just talking about the Greek Empire. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's always been a confusing passage to me, I'll be honest. I've never been Uh, able to make much sense of it. Daniel 11? Or well, just the, the 70 weeks passage. I can't oh, even remember yeah. what chapter it is. Um, yeah, it's Daniel 9. Yeah, Daniel 9, yeah. Yeah, and before the, uh, the seven-year covenant that's negotiated. So what it says in Daniel 9, 26, that uh, in the time of the end, or that the end time, which is the Hebrew word ketz, actually means the end days. And then you get into Daniel 9, 27. So you get the context for the time that that week's been sliced out for. And it's the last seven years because everything's going to be fulfilled. So uh, before you go into the millennium. Um, so for me, it's, it's, uh, it's just let it flow. Just let it mm-hmm. read what it says and put it around Jesus' template. Once you do that, uh, everything sort of makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you just talked about the the millennium. So what what millennial view would you consider yourself holding, or do you have your own own way of looking at it? Yeah. So I take it as a millennial view. Is uh, I I would have to ask a question first. Are you are you talking about the timing of the rapture or when the millennium happens? 
Uh, well, let's start with the timing of the rapture, and then we can get into the okay. other. Yeah, that that would be yeah. Yeah, because I think the millennium, from my view, happens after the last seven years, right? And as right, so. Um, well, my personal position is 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 I hope and I pray for a pre-trib um, rapture. My research says otherwise, so I would be placing the rapture for my research just after the midpoint of of the last uh, seven years. So after the abomination. Um, before the time of trial, mm. which is um, talked about in, in early on in, in Revelation, time of temptation is, is how the King James Version um, lays it out. And that's the same hour that is described in Revelation 14, where it's going to have the summary for the last three and a half years, starting at about verse eight or nine. And the hour of the destruction of Babylon. You also have at that same time frame this hour in Revelation 17 where the ten kings are going to hand their power over to Antichrist to come to power who destroys Babylon in Revelation 17. And it's also the hour of destruction described uh, in, in Revelation uh, 18 for the destruction of Babylon. And we're told to come out of Babylon. So it's after the abomination, after you come out of Babylon, but before the temptation. What that temptation is, or that trial, is it is, I think, the mark of the beast in this particular narrative of the rapture. Because the deception will be so great, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, that even the elect mm -hmm. would be deceived. So that's deceived, the trial yeah. that we're going to yeah. be saved from. And then when you understand that the only other thing that we're promised in terms of the timing, other than nobody knows, not even the son of the exact time, um, is that we're going to be saved from the wrath of God. Mm -hmm. which is you have the wrath bowls, you have the trumpets, you have the seals. So the wrath bowls is the wrath of God being poured out. The wrath is only right. for uh, non-believers. It's not for uh, believers. Uh, and the wrath of God, as you match that up in the Old Testament, is the year of the Lord's wrath and the day of the Lord's wrath, the day of the Lord's vengeance. And just before the year of favor which is the time of the exodus so you have the in the last three and a half years you have the a whole year of revenge uh, and things being poured out of a cup as it's talked about in the old testament which is a vessel yeah. like the bowls um, and you have the year of the exodus and the reconciliation of judah and israel and as part of the resurrection of ezekiel 37 of the dry bones and to be judged and link in daniel 12 uh, into that and also in the time of jacob's trouble i'm going to come back to that in a second which is the hebrew word sarah um, and then you have at the teens in ezekiel 37 you have uh, the second exodus being mentioned 
uh, and the uniting back into one staff with King David and, and, and Jehovah. And Ezekiel 38 and 39, 39 after, this is the Gog War of just before the midpoint of the last seven years, after the burial of, of that army in Ezekiel, Bill 39, you have the second exodus again. So after that, and I place it in the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, and you look at Jeremiah 37, and it's talking about the second exodus and the destruction that they're going to be saved of. And as the book of Micah talks about in, in chapter 5 and chapter 2, Israel is going to be broken out of the prisons by their breaker and led by not only David, but also their Lord Jehovah. So you have those two years, but we're we're so we're told and that we're going to be saved from the wrath, just as the reconciliation and the judgment of Israel, they're saved from the wrath. But that happens after rapture. And so in Hosea, Hosea 9 7, you get the days of Jesus' visitations. And just as in the book of Luke, you get the days of the Son of Man. There's multiple days that he's coming back for, for rapture, exodus, and for Armageddon. And once we start to understand that, it starts to sort of really sort of line up with the, with the chronology of Jesus again in Matthew mm -hmm. 24. But we're told that we're going to be saved mm -hmm. from the wrath. And we're told that in several passages. Um, but we're told, we're told that we should expect tribulation as well. And so mm -hmm. in the New Testament, you have wrath being... Uh, coming from two different words, uh, orge and thumus. And they're used interchangeably, and sometimes they might say vengeance, and one says wrath, they're, they're sort of used interchangeably. But it's a distinctly different word than what tribulation comes from, which is the, word, uh, the Greek word thalipsis. And so, again, we're told in the New Testament that we should expect tribulation right. um, and that in revelation 210 you get 10 days of tribulation which is suggesting more than seven years but i think it's referring to the rise of babylon there i won't go into a long oration on how i got there but understand that they're talking about days as in days of the week which would be uh, ten years of tribulation, and Babylon has the blood of the saints on her. Uh, so, in the rise of Babylon, and then in the first three and a half years, and then you get the great tribulation not seen since the beginning of the world. Again, Greek word thalipsis that is being talked about in Matthew twenty four twenty one, and again a little bit later, a couple of verses later in the book of Matthew. So, we see in the book of uh, Revelation in chapter 6, that um, the saints who have been resurrected are told to wait a little bit longer for those who are going to be martyred for the testimony of Jesus like they were. So this is mm. part of the first fruits. And Jesus talked about, or Paul talked about, um, the resurrection sequence of Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, <clears throat> those who are asleep in him and those are who are still alive. So factor that in now that they're going to wait for these saints that are going to be martyred in Revelation 7. And they're, they're martyred for the same reason, and they come out of the great tribulation. That's the Greek word 
Apocalypses. Now, in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about this great affliction that's going to happen. Not great, but you're going to be afflicted. And that they're going to kill you. And you have, in Luke and Mark, they're adding to the detail on this in terms of uh, the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost providing wisdom to testify to Jesus in this period before the abomination and part of the signs of the oration that Jesus is giving right after the, uh, the birthing sorrows. And so this is the uh, Greek word, ellipses, the same word that is part of the great tribulation in, in uh, Matthew 24, 21. And what's interesting is in Mark's account of Matthew 24, 21 and Mark 13, 19, it talks about, again, this great destruction <clears throat> not seen since the beginning of the world. Only doesn't use the word tribulation there. It uses the word affliction, which is the Greek word thalipses, which is used for tribulation in Matthew 24, 21 in its parallel accounting. So the translators haven't been exactly clear on the translation of tribulation for us to make it easier. And so you also get tribulation in Matthew 24, 29. Um, again, talking about tribulation in the, uh, uh, the Greek word thalipses, and it's the same as in Matthew uh, 13, 24. But it's that sort of interchanging of the, the word of the translators that gets confusing. So when you line that up, we're going to have tribulation and we're going to have Babylon persecute us during the rise and up to the time of the abomination and before the start of the great tribulation, which is the same word that's as uh, would be the cognate word for the time of the time of Jacob's trouble, Sarah, uh, of the Old Testament, and the time not seen since the beginning of creation. And it's the time of the second exodus, and it's the time and the same word in Daniel 12:1 when Michael stands at the time of the war in heaven as it matches up to Revelation 12. And this is the time of the judgment uh, of, of Israel, some to everlasting life and some to judgment, um, that is at the midpoint of the, of the last seven years. And that time of trouble is the Hebrew word Sarah again. So the... Just the language and everything just fits if you let it. And so just after the abomination, after Babylon is destroyed, but just before the mark of the beast is when we're going to be saved from the time of temptation. And that happens before the wrath bowls in the last year. And then you have the balance of the bride being reconciled with awakened Israel by the 144,000, part of the first fruits. They're called first fruits in Revelation 14. They're depicted in heaven, so the inference is that these first fruits would have been martyred as being called first fruits as part of the first fruits resurrection. And then you get the summary of the last three and a half years, starting with uh, the fall of Babylon um, in about 14.8 or 14.9. So... I know that was a bit of a long rabbit tail. I could go on for a lot longer, <laughs> but that's how I fit everything together. So mid-trib, would that characterize your... your just after. Is that... Just yeah, after. Just after. Okay. Yeah, I, I, like, I like how you 
you draw the distinction between tribulation and God's wrath. That's important, I think. I, th- I it think is. a lot of systems conflate the two of those. Yeah, we're told we're going to go through tribulation. We're told we're not going to go through the wrath. And another interesting piece that matches up here is, is that it says in Matthew 24 that before the abomination, first the pr- gospel has to be preached to the end of the world, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then the end will come which is very important because that's that great end time three and a half years. That's that great tribulation that leads to, to the wrath bowls and, the, and, and Armageddon. And that you have the two witnesses that are going to preach for the first three and a half years, as Revelation 11 tells us. And then you have the 144,000 that show up at the beginning of the um, last seven years, as Daniel 9 lays out for that time frame and the time frame that you get for uh, the preaching of the two witnesses, because after that you have the trampling of Jerusalem for three and a half years, so you have the seven years there, and Antichrist rules in Revelation 13 for three and a half years, because he's the one who does the trampling there and sets up the abomination, and that 144,000 are shown right at the end of the, the midpoint before you get the summary and then the details of the last three and a half years of the major events in Revelation 15 through 19. And you have the preaching of this gospel by the 144,000 and you have the preaching of the gospel and prophecies by the two witnesses for the first three and a half years. And then just before the summary, you get the angel flying in the air that preaches the gospel to the whole earth. And then you get the summary mm. of the last three and a half years that leads to the wrath bulls. Mm. I really like how you start with, with, like you said, Jesus with all this. You start with Jesus. You start with the Gospels. You start yeah. with, the, you know, like the, what was it? The early church fathers used to say that, that in the Old Testament, Jesus was concealed. In the New Testament, Jesus is revealed. We should start with the revelation before we go into the the concealed part, and and I've seen often with people with their eschatological views, they they start with the Old Testament instead of starting with the New, and, you know, and it makes more sense because he Jesus is the foundation, he's the rock that we build all these other, you know, all the other. It makes all the other prophecies, particularly in in the unknown places that people don't tend to look, like Ezekiel and and all that kind of stuff. We just they'll focus on Daniel and they'll, they'll focus on a few Old Testament books, yep. but they won't include the whole gambit of all the prophetic like you said for Judah, for you know the the lost tribes of yep. Israel, for yep. all that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's I all got to be I sort of your, I it's see all got to fit. I see the picture. Yep. Yeah, I see the picture. Yeah, and so yeah. let's say yep. Yeah, so if you want to overlay what Daniel's talking about, it fits perfectly on Jesus's chronology. In all of the all of the Daniel 2, 7, 8, 9, 11 and 12, it just fits perfectly and Revelation fits into both perfectly. So, you know, as another example, you can take 2 Thessalonians where uh, Jesus comes after the falling away, uh, uh, an apostasia. Uh, it is, you know, a, a defection, a great defection of the time, just as Babylon is going to seduce Christians like crazy uh, away from God. And uh, yeah. then after that, uh, the son of uh, perdition is revealed, who is going to exalt himself uh, in the temple. 
And so, you know, when you're going to be, um, when you're going to be uh, offended, as the word is talked about in Matthew 24, that's the word scandaliso, means to seduce away. Mm. Um, so you have to sort of dig a little bit deeper, but when you dig deeper, you just find things just fit more. So that's the apostasy that's, that's going to be taking place. And the son of perdition has to be revealed before Jesus comes back. And of course, you have the revealing in the abomination, and then you get a sign that is uh, in the second half. And uh, at that sign, he's going to send his his angels to gather the elect. Uh, and you just have to, all, all you know, the easiest way to say it is just sort of let it flow. And in that last half, not only do you have... Uh, resurrection sequence but you also have that will have been completed you have the rapture and then you have the final gathering as uh, what is being talked about uh, in the second exodus with the gathering of the elect so you have Judah that flees to the wilderness and Israel from around the world will be broken out of their prisons who have awakened Judah is around the world they're going to be led by Jesus and led by King David and Expect the seven shepherds of Micah as well uh, are going to lead them back to the wilderness to, to to have all of this happen, and that's you know after the rapture. So, um, yeah, I probably talked enough about that. Unless you have some more questions on more things that we could overlay, but it's just as examples as how easily it sort of fits. So, and if you yeah. use markers like yeah. trumpets and things like that, and the archangels, it just fits with the other passages as well. Yeah, yeah and, and and honestly, I, I don't want to disclose your whole book. I, I want people to read your book and buy your book. So yeah, well, well, I, I do have uh, a, a few more questions that I'd like to ask. I don't know how long this one would be or how deep it is, but um, this is kind of a speculatory. I know you're you're big on, and I agree with this that you're contrary and you want the, and because I tend to be too. But but how? Just to speculate, how how pervasive do you think that the Nephilim bloodlines are in the human race today? And and what part does that play in the end time scheme? Well, we certainly get the great and mighty men of the end time, as the book of Revelation talks about, Megas and Megasthenes, and that these are the princes, these are the kings, and these are the oligarchs, and they're the ones that are uh, fornicating with... Um, Babylon in the first three and a half years and then give their power to Antichrist. Mm -hmm. When we have a testament in Greek and a testament that's in Hebrew, you don't get that perfect sort of bridge to the exact same words. I mean, you would like to have Gibor, you would like to have, you know, Rafa or something like that, that you've got these sort of direct connections, but you have to sort of look for the cognate words. And so when you take that, those words back to Megas and Megastranes, you're talking about something that's big and large as part of its description, but they're also the royals. So if you look at what happens both before and after the flood, you have an organizational structure that usurps the world. You have a mystical religion, um, and you have Nephilim kings before the flood. After the flood, you have that same archetypical setup with the Noahites, with Nimrod taking over as an archetypical Antichrist-type figure at Babel, which is the root word for Babylon, uh, as it comes out of the, the Greek New Testament. And um, 
you have uh, an antichrist type figure in 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 Nimrod that's doing this. And so after the flood, you're going to have the same organizational structure that is set up before the flood. So that includes the royal bloodlines who are ruling that are Nephilim and Nephilim or Rephaim and Rephaim hybrid bloodlines. And you have this Babel and daughter of Babel religions as part of the beast empires and part of all of the nations that set up a hierarchy of the noble elite ruling the upper class. So they control the education, they control the priesthood, they control the culture, they control the money, they control the army, they control education, they control everything. And then you're left with a very small entrepreneurial blacksmith baker tailor type of class uh and then a slave class so you have four classic um classes that come out of prehistory you know it as the feudal system that came out of europe but it's the same basis that you see all around the world as that class system that was set up on all, in all cultures and all in in all continents and so these bloodline kings continue to populate and control all through our history as the visible spurious offspring of the fallen angels and as the royales royale al um, is al is a transliteration of el in hebrew which is an angel or a god and right. then you see the word god in the old testament it's going to go back to generally l baal would be an example of that transliteration where you have, you know, Lord, Lord God, as the uh, Freemasons like to call Baal, um, and Il is another transliteration, or Ilu is another transliteration, and there's several ones that are used throughout the Middle East that are very similarly spelled. So these that Royal is Roy, as in Old French, going back to Regal in Latin, being king. And to rule or ruler, as it goes back to Indo-Aryan, um, and L, kings of God, Rex Deus, as I call them in uh, the first book, which means kings of God. And so these are the bloodlines that continue to rule today. So you're saying, how prevalent are they? Well, they control all of the secret societies at the top level that control all of the power levers around the world today through their societies. And... Further, um, we know that um, fifteen percent of the population is uh, Rh negative. Now, I don't write about Rh negative in the first book because you sort of need sort of kind of absolute sort of proof. Uh, but they track their genealogies, and that's got the word gene in it. So some of the major genes that they're tracking are the LB gens and the Julia gens. Julia gens is the word used for the Italian black nobility that would go back to Julius Caesar, Augustus, through the Senate, back to Romulus and Remus. LB gens has a similar, I won't go through, but you get that it goes back to a specific patriarch. Um, and it's the gene that would produce the blood type. So it's the, 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 the gene of Albi or the gene of Julia or the gene of Isis uh, that I name a chapter of in the first book or the fairy gene or the elven gene. There's a lot of different genes, but it's that specific gene of the gods that's in the DNA that was passed on to them that would produce a specific blood type. So a lot of people will say that 
Rh negative is missing the D antigen. So how do you add something to something if it's missing something? It's, it's uh, an oxymoron. And so it's not that you're adding that. It's the gene that determines uh, the, the blood type. And that most of the royals are Rh negative. Uh, the Windsors are O negative, for example, and O negative would be sort of sort of the top of of that as the universal blood type that can match with anything. So, um, mm -hmm. if you're using that, there's probably a maximum of fifteen percent. But it, when you're talking about the wealth in the world of the great wealth, you know that great one percent of the absolute pure blood is probably fairly representative, and then it sort of gets weaker in terms of the purity of the stock. And they track their genealogies to track their purity or the grafted-in bloodlines. So how powerful are they? Well, they control everything in the background. When I was doing my research for my book in terms of the wealth that they have, their wealth isn't on the books. So when you look at Bill Gates today or uh, Elon Musk is the richest man. That's a drop in the bucket. When I was doing the research of the off the wealth market, uh, and this was in say 2000 to 2002, in that era, early on in the 2000s, is the estimated wealth off the books at that time was 300 to 500 trillion. You can only imagine oh, what that would be today. Wow. Yeah, and it's oh, and man. it's that kind of money that can sort of control things. And so it, it doesn't take a great number with that type of power and wealth from behind the scenes to control things. But I think there's more than what people think that there are of them, but they're more of the diluted bloodlines that will be part of the sort of upper class and the oligarch class and the, and, and the new money. So, yeah, they're, they're out there and they are very, very powerful. The Western Europeans have a specific vision for their new world order. But other bloodlines around the world do not agree. And so we're seeing that pushback today um, yeah. uh, from, from, from other parts of the world. Like different cabals, so to speak, right? Yeah. So you have to understand as well, and when you're trying to understand the bloodlines, that there are rivalry, rivalries there. And that even though they're all working towards the same goal directionally at the end of the day whether it's from their belief as 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 the great monarch as the europeans might call him or lord maitreya uh the dragon messiah or antichrist as we would call him there can only be one ruling family in terms of how they see this playing out so there's a rivalry as to who would be that family that's going to rule for the thousand years that they are promising, whether it was in the Third Reich or people now call us the Fourth Reich, but or the New Age is another word. That's that millennium that Antichrist will promise uh, because he has to counterfeit everything that, that Jesus said, did, and will do. And so as, least as, as much as he can. And so you have these rivalries that have been going on forever. So... You had something called social masonry that was created in the 1800s by the bloodline societies in, in, in Europe. And that, uh, understand the 13 families are only the Western families. There's bloodlines from all around the world that would have similar organizational structures set up around the world. So they created social masonry and they educated people like Trotsky and Lenin in it and other people. 
and they created something called communism, and they launched that communism on a rival, uh, a pure blood Scythian bloodline uh, out of that was originated in Kiev, um, the Putyanin, who uh, uh, produced a junior offshoot offshoot after setting up setting up the Moscow dynasty that became in about the 1600s as the junior offshoot just as the Plantagenet or junior offshoot of the Anjou part of the same house but a scioning in um, which is a grafting in you have the Romanovs so they are Putyanin but they're named Romanovs well this was still classified as a more pure original bloodline and the migrated bloodlines that came out of the Middle East. And so they were a little bit offside on how things would play out. And so they put communism on the Russian bloodline and destroyed almost all of the, the Russian bloodline. Then they created wow. national socialism to take care of communism that got out of control. And of course, that destroyed the Kaiser bloodline and eventually reduced the Habsburg as part of that alliance bloodline down to a, a lower level of power. Then they launched that bloodline, that, that virus on China. The original dragon creator gods created the Shah dynasty that's spelled X-I-A, and the western part of the Shah dynasty was spelled X-I, and typically that will show up as the first part, first part of a name, which is the, the last name in China, and we now have a bloodline fellow who's descended from the uh, the Shah dynasties by the name of Xi, X-I is how it's spelled, and he has a whole different opinion as what uh, Putin does, who believes he is the illegitimate son of his, his grandfather or great-grandfather out of uh, Kiev, uh, who was born um, through an out-of-marriage of one of the Putyanins, and they didn't provide the whole name in their tradition, and so he believes he's legitimate heir to the Putyanin dynasty and is trying to take Kiev back. We have bloodlines all over the world, and as we go through the sorrows and the wars and rumors of wars that's going to lead to the false prophets, that's going to lead to Babylon, we're going to see wars that are going to be going on that is going to make way for the old bloodlines to come back to power. So we have ten kings, as Daniel 2 talks about, Daniel 7 talk about, Revelation 12, 13, and 17. Oh, wow. Yep, that makes sense. Yep. That's... Yeah, wow. I'm overwhelmed with all the information. That's yeah, that's incredible I stuff. I filled up several pages of my yellow pad here. <laughs> so, um yeah, it's kind of getting late in the in the uh show here, but I I want you to uh kind of tell us about your new book, not not the content, but to, to tell us about the new book <laughs> and and where it is and when it's coming out and process and all that kind of stuff if you will for us. Yeah, so um, we have the cover design that's out. Um, I'm uh, editing the editor on the last section, section seven, as we speak, and uh, looking for uh, August or September release, depending on how fast we can get it into the publishing queue. It is called The Genesis hey. Six Conspiracy Part Two, How Understanding Prehistory and Prophecy Helps to Define End Time uh, Prophecy. And so this book is, uh, I said I would never write a sequel to uh, the Genesis 6 because I didn't want to be redundant, but 
over the years that I've been, that the book has been published and the shows that I've done and the social media and the emails and everything I get, what I've learned is, is that people want way more information that is being taught in the churches and they want to be taught about the whole Bible, uh, which includes prehistory and prophecy. And so I decided to, to write a book, but I wanted to write it in a way that would be redundant of the first book because there's particularly in polytheism and secret societies, you can go on forever. So this book is targeted directly at Christians as opposed to the first book that is designed to hopefully get people to have a look at what's in the Bible as well as targeted uh, at Christians as well to maybe dig a little deeper into the Bible. This one is targeted yeah. at Christians and it goes into how much information is in the Old Testament about giants, hybrid giants, walks through all of the giant wars after the flood, including the Exodus, um, defines all of those giants and those hybrid nations that are talked about within the Bible, uh, gets into the angelic order, uh, both loyal and rebellious, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. and also brings out words and understanding that you need to understand end-time prophecy. And then I start linking that into end-time prophecy and then start laying down end-time chronology uh, in, in a way that makes sense and in a way that I've laid out um, uh, earlier. And I also, in the preface, talk about my approach and I give 10 basic guidelines that I use and to try and discipline and keep me on track. Wow. I can't wait. I'm so excited for it to come out. Um, there's a question we ask most people on our show usually at the end. And I'm just curious to, see, to hear what you have to say is uh, what is the, the most supernatural experience that you've ever had since being a Christian? Um, well, I can't say I've had something like a vision. I have not had that. Um, I don't claim to be a prophet. Uh, I don't claim to be a minister. I don't claim to be a disciple. I'm, I'm a researcher. Um, so when, when I get sort of asked that question, I like to be sort of very, very, very humble about things. Um, and there are things that can happen to you in life. There's lots of little things that you sort of can't sort of necessarily explain. Like when I was doing, um, research for my book and I couldn't find a book. In fact, um, several occasions where inexplicably it would be just there. And so wow. one of the books I was mm -hmm. looking for, um, cause I wanted to get information into the first book about the Kishimaya and I wanted to get a copy of the Popol Vuh and it was out of publication and you just can't get it. And people tried to get it for me. They thought they could, nobody could get it for me. And so I thought, well, I'm just won't be part of the book. And towards the end of the research on the book, um, I went on a vacation and we were on a cruise and we stopped at the Maya Riviera and my wife and I, we went into the downtown and have a look at area, you know, around the downtown area and it was very hot and she needed some water and she says, I need to get some water and she sees this run down little store and it's just like a long little closet store. And as soon as I walk in the door, I know I have to go to the back of the store. And at the back of the store, they've, they have a few books. And there's the Popol Vuh. I grab it, and I bought it, and I put it in the book. Um, 
Wow. But that's, that's those that's are amazing. odd that's little that's things that would happen that way. Yeah. But when I was quite young and I was stuff. 16, yeah, the most powerful one that is most inexplicable is, uh, and I, I lived in, grew up in, in northern Saskatchewan and we had gone and taken my sister back to Edmonton. And we just got my, uh, me and my brother were twins, um, just had gotten our driver's licenses and we we're driving back in April and you can get really bad storms and ice and black ice up in Canada. And I was driving and, uh, you know, the car was just absolutely out of control going 60 or 70 miles an hour semis coming right at us on a, on a head on. And I'm trying to wave out of the way and we go spinning out of control into, uh, the ditch. And, uh, then we came out of the ditch and I continued to drive and, my brother turned to me and said, how did you do that? I said, I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Well. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> and I just look at it that if, you know, that had, hadn't happened, then I don't do what I do today, obviously. I think we would have been killed. Mm. That's amazing. When you're interviewed like this, are there ever any kind of questions that you wish you would be asked? I mean, no is a good answer for this. You don't have to have one. But are there ever any uh, uh, that you wished an interviewer would ask you about or something they would ask you about? I do. I do so many shows that um, I think they've probably all been asked. Um, (laughs) The questions questions that uh, I would encourage people to ask me on a show is, is what are the things your audience are most interested in, in the Bible or research that I do and ask those questions. Cause what I want to do is I want to, I want to help, help people to connect the dots and I want to encourage them to make sense of the Bible and of this world and to dig a little deeper and then help other people. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's obvious that, that that's your ministry and, and you're doing a superb job of it. I mean, it's I mean, this book is is incredible and and I haven't finished yet. I'm I'm going through it and I can't wait for the, the next one to come out where I can dig into it, too. And just that. But it, and also, you know, your 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 ministry of being on people's shows and podcasts. I mean, you I, I've listened to like and I know Lindsay has. We've listened to several different. Podcasts, and, and I think that, uh, yeah, you're. You're doing a great job of uh, putting it all out there and, and people are getting it. And, you know, what one podcast might miss, another one will get and vice versa. So, yeah. And I think it's vital, uh, Gary, for us to know this because, I mean, I don't like to speculate, but I, I do believe, particularly since the past like five or six years, that the end times are, are quickly upon us. And I don't want to get you to speculate or, or and if you want to comment on that, you can. But but I do. I, there's 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 this sense. I mean, I'm almost fifty, and and I've seen even in my lifetime that that just this. I feel this urgency that I haven't felt for years of being a Christian for thirty years, and I I don't know yeah. how would you respond to that. Well, I I, I do think we're in the fig tree generation. Um, and if we are, we're still in the sorrows, uh, I try and encourage people not to get ahead of prophetic chronology. So 
-hmm. You hear all the time that people say this person's antichrist or that person's antichrist. Well, we got we have yeah. a ways to go. There's things that haven't been done yet. You know, or people will say, well, rapture's coming tomorrow, or Revelation 12 sign has been here. That's the rapture one that was large a few number of years ago. And I said, no, that's astrology. That's not it. <laughs> Believe me, the sign is not going to be an astrology sign. So um, so we want to get ahead. And there are stumbling blocks. Like, we don't have world government yet. We see it on the horizon. We don't have a universal religion. We see endeavors to bring that about we don't have the people of judah um, sacrificing on the wing of the temple yet um, none of that's mm -hmm. happened yet so we have events yet to be fulfilled in in those three and a half years and in the fig tree generation that's uh, um, to come so the reason why i think we might be in the fig tree generation is that you have in end time prophecy, the Southern Kingdom back in their land. And so, but more importantly, they're back in control of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is kind of the epicenter of events for end time prophecy. And yeah. so that's, yeah. that's a critical piece. I look at uh, Jesus before he went to the temple, before he presented the end time oration to answer the questions of the disciples of the signs of the end time in his second coming uh, that he uh, killed a fig tree because its fruit uh, was was no longer valid uh, was bare um, and then when you understand old time prophecy and allegorically and prophetic allegory the northern kingdom is referenced as the vine and the southern kingdom is referenced as the fig tree. And then Jesus uses the fig tree um, allegory after killing the fig tree. Uh, and when you mm -hmm. see this um, fig tree bloom again, this is the time. This, and and, this, and, in, this, and in, in this generation, everything that he says will be fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not pass away. Mm -hmm. So we can't reinvent what he says. That there's this one specific generation, and he calls calls it the fig tree generation. And we don't know how long a generation is. Uh, in Exodus, yeah, it's forty true. years, and Psalms, it's seventy years, and Genesis six three actually says one hundred twenty years. Now it doesn't have to be a full generation, but I think we're in that fig tree generation, and. You know, one of those would be 70 years from 1967, taking of Jerusalem, and that would put us into that Magianic period of somewhere in the 2030s, but it could be longer, so we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. And so wars and the rumors of wars are something that we have to be um, understanding of, but there's also the earthquakes, which is all, which are also increasing, and there's also pestilence, and there's also famine. They're going to work together, and I think these are contrived catastrophes, and they're going to get stronger as we go through the fig tree generation, and these calamities are going to lead to the false prophets, lead to Babylon, lead to universal religion and, and the world government, and by the time of the seal openings, Babylon will be in power. One presumes the ten kings will be subservient to her at that point in time or shortly thereafter. And that uh, 
in Revelation 6, after the seal openings, we're going to get 25% destruction of the world, of the people, of everything. Mm. So they get stronger. And I think even before that, people are going to say some of these wars that the false prophets are going to predict, um, I think that they're going to predict, um, is going to look like Armageddon. So people are going to falsely say, this is it. And then we're going to get to the revelation. And then people are going to say, that's Armageddon. And even in Revelation 6, you have these princes and these royal bloodlines that are talked about. And I didn't finish what I was saying earlier, but in Ezekiel 38 and 39, you get these kings slaughtered in that uh, war just before the midpoint. And also in, in Revelation 19 and also in Joel 1 and 2, which is Ezekiel 38 and 9 war in Revelation and Ezekiel 38, 39, Revelation 9, and Joel 1 and 2, you have these mighty men, these Gabor, uh, that are part of that war in the last seven years, first half, just before the midpoint. And then you get uh, Gabor again that are in Joel 3 that are also part of the uh, Armageddon War. And in Ezekiel 39, with that war just before the midpoint, you've got these mighty ones again. These are the Gabor, and you also have the Travelers, which is another rabbit hole I won't go down today. But you sort of get sort of that (laughs) that imagery that these wars are going to continue to happen, um, and then they get stronger to the point of 25% destruction. And then in the trumpet judgments, with the timing of the Revelation 9 war, Joel 1 and 2, Ezekiel 38 9, it's 33% destruction. And in Revelation wow. 6, you have the nice. kings in that wars, set of wars, are going into the caves and saying, it's the time of the Lord, right? It's the time of Armageddon. And so even some of them are going to be deceived. And you're going to see this war that is so large in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Joel 1 and 2, Revelation 9, that it will become the counterfeit Armageddon or Antichrist to take credit for winning. And then he marches his armies into Jerusalem as Daniel 11 and and Luke 21 talk about and sets up the abomination. And Mm -hmm. you still haven't gotten Armageddon yet, which would be (laughs) 100% destruction lest Jesus stepped in because no flesh would be saved. And so we have yeah. to be careful of what we're of the tribulations that we're going to be going through because they get stronger throughout the victory generation just as the sorrows get stronger. And they're the exact same catastrophes that are described in the sorrows as in uh, the seals and in the trumpets and in the wrath pools. Wow. Mm-hmm. That, that yep that answers that that's that's yeah so people wonder how could the elect be deceived we're going to see things we have not seen before and we're going to see a lot of things that are going to look like armageddon yeah and then it, as each one comes it, it's it's going to be like the boy who cried wolf is this the real one is this the real one and then you know the yes the real one we're going to know yeah yeah yep so yeah, I guess if they were, (laughs) yeah, yep. If they were saying, boy, that cried wolf when Peter was still alive, I mean, it won't get any better by the time of that. 
Well, that generation consider this. this. Consider this: that Antichrist needs a counterfeit Antichrist that he can claim he defeated. Oh wow! So that's why mm. Jesus warned us there'd be multiple Antichrists. That's well, I wonder if that relates to the beast turning on the harlot. I mean, that that's got to happen too. However, that yeah, plays it in. does. It does, and that's that hour of trial where they hand their power over to Antichrist to destroy Babylon, so that he can set up his new religion uh, that Daniel um, eleven talks about, um, mm. and is in Revelation thirteen. So. Uh, where the false prophet, you know, creates the image and he starts the reign. So, yeah, so you've got um, those 10 kings and he overthrows three three of those kings as well. So uh, I think uh, the one that, you know, rises to uh, Antichrist-like would be Gog, a chief prince of, uh, Gog of Magog, chief prince of Meshach. And what's interesting about Gog is that he doesn't show up in the table of nations like Magog does. Uh, mm. Gog actually it comes sort of comes out of nowhere and is defined as a uh, both in Greek and in um, the Old Testament as being an, an end time uh, antichrist type figure. Now Gog, out of polytheism, was the offspring of a parent god named Iapetus. In the Greek mythology, as was Magog and Elbion, I think uh, one of the tribes of Japheth was named after one of those giants, <laughs> Magog. And so, you're going to have this release of the abyss in Revelation nine, just before that Revelation nine war. And I think that you're going to see the release of fallen angels that are coming out. I think you're going to see the release of the demons that are locked in the sides of the abyss that Ezekiel 32 and Isaiah 14 talk about, the terrible ones, the terrible things while on earth and were sent and are speaking to Pharaoh on that very obscure prophecy that I also talk about in the new book, um, that I think are going to be part of uh, this war that's going to look like Armageddon. And, you know, understand that Antichrist, uh, false prophet, and Satan, at the time of Armageddon, they actually have these Demons come out of their mouths to do miracles to gather the kings for Armageddon. So you could translate that as not as coming out of the mouths, that they actually command those demons. And that the de demons will be working to possess or have an oikotarian, uh, a dwelling place for the spirit, comes from habitation and house in heaven, Jude 1 6 and first, first Corinthians, or yeah, first uh, Corinthians 5 2. Uh, could be Second Corinthians five two. Anyways, um, people don't get a hold of me. I can send you that 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 passage. And that I think they're going to be creating through the technology abilities for these things to either uh, take possess of a clone body, some sort of chimera body that they might be developing, which starts to answer some of the questions about these crazy creatures that are in the Revelation nine war, and or they're going to be possessing the kings. Um that are ruling the world at that time as well. And in the occult system, they like to invite these demons in because they think they, they can add more power, but I think it's just the demon that takes control. So they're just not fighting back. Uh, whereas in we see uh, in 
demon possession in the New Testament. There's a struggle going on between the host and the uh, and and the demon spirit. Uh, I think this demon spirit is, uh, you know, coming in on behalf and invited in by the uh, by these kings that will give them more power. So I think there's a there's a connection in there as well. So we have to be aware of for the end time. Hmm. Yeah. And if people are wondering or not familiar with the with the topic, the disembodied spirits of the giants um, don't go to sleep. So biblically, we're told hundreds of times in the Bible that when we die, we sleep and that the soul and the body is of this earth and our spirit goes back to heaven and that there's those three components. So it's the soul and the body. That's that dwelling place in the physical world for a spirit to interact physically. So demons need a physical body uh, to interact with or some other substitute kind of oikotarian like the teraphim, those are talked about as walking or talking idols in the old Testament um, to hold that, that spirit. So, uh, it's a concept that's really important to understand that uh, there's a dwelling place that fallen angels also created for themselves, which was a soul and body where their spirit uh, merged into so that they could procreate and pass on the DNA to create, create the giant. So it's all interconnected. Mm -hmm. I have a great document for people if they want it on soul, body, and spirit, and just sort of walk you through that scripturally. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, if if people want to reach out to you and they want to uh, connect, uh, what are what are the best ways for them to do that? I'm gonna put the details in the show notes, but let's let's just kind of get them, you know, yep. uh, all the, the things the best, you have available. The best way to get a hold of me if you uh, want a document on a certain topic that I might have mentioned on the show, or you want to ask whether I have a document on a subject that I didn't, if I have it. I will send it to you at no charge. If you just want to ask a question, I'll answer your question. It might take me six weeks to get back to you, but I will get back to you. And mm -hmm. the best way to get a hold of me is uh, through my website at the genesis6conspiracy.com. That's genesis6, the number 6conspiracy.com. And if you forget that, you can go to my media page uh, on my website. Um, where it says contact Gary Wayne for an interview. If you click on that, that's my website email. It will come through to me. Okay, great. That's awesome. Well, Gary, thank you so much for being on our show today. I appreciate it. I mean, I'm just, uh, I'm still reeling and overwhelmed with all the stuff and I can't wait to read your new book and I'm anxious for it to come out. Thank you. We yeah. Appreciate thank you. you, man. Thanks for listening and supporting us. And remember, stay naturally supernatural.